Welcome to this week's edition of the Terry's Talking Podcast. I am David Campbell, the host, and I am joined by Mr. Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from the Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. Terry, how you doing, man? I am well, David. Good. Hey, a couple of housekeeping things at the top here. Number one, I want to make sure I don't forget to mention Terry's newsletter. It comes out every Monday, and if you want to get a free email in your inbox every week with Terry's stuff that he's done the whole week, go to cleveland.com slash newsletters. It's free. Click the box, put in your email, you're done. It's nice and easy. You can get everything Terry writes his faith column. And then, Terry, I have an apology to make. Our, one of our listeners pointed this out. You were absolutely right last week that it was Jedrick Wills in the game a week ago Sunday against the 49ers who was a legal man downfield. I was the one who got it mixed up, and it's just another episode of never doubt Terry's memory. Like, no, that was not it, just because I just recalled that. But it was actually, you were right on one where Wyatt Teller messed up. I think that was on the hold that cost them a touchdown. Yeah, I got those two crossed up yeah. in my head, and that's the uh, that's the dangers of taping a podcast and not being able to go check your those- stuff. Since those flags were throwing, David, so we could. Indeed. So, uh, hey, let's get into the Browns here. So the Browns are four and two after that wild, wild win on Sunday against the Colts. Terry, I I can't remember a game like that that the Browns have played in the last several years. Wasn't that weird? You were there. In every way, yes, it was. I mean, first of all, everybody knew Gardner Minshew would run for two touchdowns. How about starting with that? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, just all those things. And then you would think if you knew Gardner Minshew had ran for two touchdowns, the Browns would have lost. And if you had known Deshaun Watson's outing lasted five passes, one interception, you would probably figure they would have lost. And if you would have known a lot of different things, that I think it was 456 yards that the Colts piled up on the Browns, you would have figured they would have lost and that it would take, what was it? Was it 39 to 38? I forgot the final. Yes. Yeah. That it would take 39 points to win. You definitely would have think the Browns would have lost. It was wild. And, and I was watching the game and I'm like, wow, we've seen so many games like this go against the Browns. I think Josh mm-hmm. Cribbs tweeted after the game, like it's about time that the Browns finally had some officials calls go their way after 20 years, yeah, <laughs> which I thought was because I thought that that uh, interference call was really, really cheap. And I, I, boy, I don't know if I would have thrown a flag there, but you know what? The Browns were do that one and about five others for all the things that have gone against them since they came back in 99. So I think Josh Cribbs was, he couldn't wait to tweet that out. Like it's about time. Yeah, <laughs> the Browns you, deserve that. Exactly. You always can go through, well, you know, they got the breaks for this. Just like the week before San Francisco. Well, Samuels got hurt and McCaffrey got hurt. Well, the Browns are out there with PJ Walker and, you know, Kareem Hunt. And I mean, basically two guys that were out of work all summer and things like that. It just, it was crazy. So I don't want to hear it. You know, the, it's not my line, but it's the, the NFL's pass fail and you either pass it or you fail. And they, they've passed the last two tests somehow. Now I'm not sure you want to go in and keep playing as they have, you know, with the different factors going on, but they're, they are foreign too. Um, now, by the way, you know, I love the kickers are my thing. Let's do it, Terry. The weekly kicker update. Dustin Hopkins, 58 yards. In fact, when they lined up for that one, I didn't like it, David. I admit, because I feared exactly what would happen when uh, uh, a gay, Matt Gay, tried that 60-yarder. When you start getting over 55 yards, Phil Dawson told me this, 
you have to kick it so hard, so you have to you can't kick it as high. You have more of a line drive, and you set yourself up for a block. And also, you're setting yourself up for a block around basically midfield. So it's a pretty dangerous play. Well, he drilled it, and he drilled a couple others from 50. Um, and you, they are basically, I think he's made nine out of ten in the last two games. And so you don't win without Dustin Hopkins at 90%. Yeah, and Terry, we had a story up on this shortly after the game, but he's, I, I didn't realize this, but he became, I thought somebody would have done this already, but he's yeah. the first NFL kicker to kick five, have five games in a row with a 50-yard field goal in each of those five games. Mm-hmm. I, I had no idea that hadn't been done before, but that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, he would have thought Justin Tucker or maybe some of the others would have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, he's becoming better at long range of late. Now, to... I'm not saying he's going to, you know, Phil Dawson's up on this huge pedestal with me, way up. Forget a pedestal. He's like on top of the, you know, Empire State Building or something. But Dawson didn't become as good from 50 yards and out until later in his career. And Hopkins, I believe, is 32. And so that might have something to do with it. It's just how you, it's one of those things. That's why kickers, some of them are older. They just figure out how to do this. And they they kind of learn a position. I mean, it's a little bit like some of the quarterbacks into their early to middle 30s are still very good because of uh, uh, just the knowledge they pick up along the way. But I'm very serious. I mean, we'd be having a totally different discussion if this guy had only made 7 out of 10 or 8 out of 10. Oh, yeah. I mean, even just the last two weeks, the 49ers yes, game, if he doesn't make that one. Yeah, like like you look at the whole season, yes, but even just the last two. Like, exactly. Man, oh, man. Well, uh, yeah, so I, Terry like said. In the, I, in the 49er game, he missed the first one. And I thought, you know what I thought? He just missed. I wasn't like, oh, great, here we go. He's going to be all caught up. With, and then he made, the, I believe, his next four. And then he continued to make them. That's the other thing that's nice about having a guy who has a pretty good track record. If he misses one, you don't think he's going to fall apart. And I think that was what was happening with Cade Bjork. And you look at some of the other younger kickers uh, who've gotten cut, and there's a whole list of them who sometimes bounce back to pretty good NFL careers. But, you know, the old thing, you know, they carried that last kick into the next kick, and then suddenly they're 0 for 2, and then they're really melting down. Yeah, I was just going to run through his stats, Terry. He's 16 of 18 for the mm-hmm. season, 8 of 8 on extra points. From 40 to 49 yards, he's 7 of 9. And then on 50 and over, he's 7 of 7. Yeah. That's really something. And I, I do think if you watch the game, I think Kevin Stefanski is thinking about things a little differently given the quarterback mm-hmm. situation because he knows he's got a kicker who can be a weapon now and get him three points. And, like and- there's there's no hedging. And also, that three points means a lot with your defense. And by the way, David, his kicks have been hard this year. I believe, if I, as I was writing down what you said, he has kicked, I think, 16 of 18 from 40 or more. Is that correct? Um, 40 or more would be 14 out of 16. Yep. Yeah. From longer than 40, 40 yards or longer. Yeah. That's and to, and to, and to nail that percentage from that distance um it's really that's like five thumbs up and 12 stars and everything else so all right the kicker report is done 
Good. So he was someone who helped the Browns win the game, Terry. Let's talk about another guy who helped the Browns win the game, Miles Garrett. Yeah. We um, we put up a post this morning kind of comparing what Miles did, which was nine tackles, two sacks, two strip sacks, <laughs> two forced fumbles, which I guess is a strip sack, and then that blocked field goal, mm-hmm. which I guess that was Bubba Ventrone's idea. He picked up on it on film. He noticed how low – the Colts get on their offensive line when they're setting up for a field goal kick and he and they were just having miles jump over guys in practice and they're like let's do it in the game uh have you ever seen a guy uh, even a Browns player dominate a game like that but um I, I've been trying to think like I, it's it's tough to come up with one like yeah, that it was something it would be hard you'd have to go back and my mind is I'm not real good on things like like what happened in different games along those lines that play with miles was a gamble because Think about this. You can't, you know, you can't vault over someone. You have to leap over them. So if that thing doesn't quite come off, it's a penalty. And I'm thinking this guy's trying, what was it, a 60-yard field goal or whatever it was. You really don't want to give him a second shot at it or they move it up. I forgot what the penalty would have been, an automatic first down, or you just pick up five yards or whatever it would have been. So that's kind of one of those. You better make sure that uh, he at least gets over that line of scrimmage without drawing a flag. By the way, I think Miles did have two offsides in that game. They've got to watch these offsides. And the other thing, I'm sure Schwartz is having a good time with the videotape with these guys, is just because they throw a flag, don't stop playing. Well, yeah, the, some of the Browns were talking about that after the game. Yeah. Like That's where they got burned yes. uh, on that first long touchdown pass. The players are saying we didn't blow a coverage like we stopped playing stopped because playing. of the offside. And yeah. like we cannot do that because, you know, Miles is going to be good for one or two of those a game. And I thought there um, was another play uh, like that where not as many stopped, but some of them did. It didn't go for a touchdown or anything, but it was a pretty good gain for them. And I'm like, guys, what? You learned this in high school. Don't stop. Yeah, and if Miles is offsides, he needs to just go. He needs to just go right to the quarterback and try and get him to get the play yeah. blown dead. Like that's the best possible outcome yeah. at that point. So yeah, a couple of things they'll be talking about in the coaching meetings this week. So, uh, but yeah, Miles right, David, Garrett, let me yeah. ask you this: How much of an aberration do you think that defensive performance was? Um, boy, I, I think it was an aberration, and I'll tell you why. I think the Browns. We have a story coming on this from Malachi Gardner, who does some analytics freelance work for us. But the Browns played a ton of zone defense because they were worried about Gardner Minshew's legs. Mm-hmm. And I, we've seen this, Terry. The Browns are at their best when that pass rush is humming and they're playing man-to-man, stick-on-your-guy defense in the back. And I think they went away from that a little bit the other day. And it was probably more than I think we're going to see them do. But if they stick with man-to-man – Coming up against Seattle, I don't think Geno Smith runs as much as Gardner Minshew did the other day, and I don't think he runs as much as some other guys are going to see on their schedule. They didn't didn't stop him, David, anyway. Right. So what? (laughs) According to what the numbers are seeing, they played zone 64% of the time on Sunday. That's this is a yeah, little bit of Joe, Joe Woods popped up all of a sudden here, you know, with some of his stuff. Now, it wasn't with the pass rush, but just like you said, 64 percent zone. And if you're doing it to start Minshew's running, he ran for two touchdowns anyway. So that didn't work on these kind of RPO things. Um, I don't know enough on, you know, the strategy, the X's and O's on this. I really don't. I just know in general. 
if you have talented players, I'd rather have them playing more man-to-man than a lot of the soft zone, just because uh, the same thing often applies in basketball. You know who you're supposed to cover. And then you know who gets blamed and who gets the credit. And I just think the Browns are better at it. Yeah. Like, and they have the guys to do it. So uh, I, I do think, like, I don't know what they're going to do Sunday against Seattle, but I do think the next week, I wonder if they're going to play more man and maybe have JOK shadow Dobbs a little mm-hmm. bit, like as a spy. Yeah. Uh, the next week against Baltimore, like that – they're going to have to come up with something because Lamar Jackson is just playing some incredible football. And this is kind of the, this is the worst thing that Browns fans were envisioning could happen with Todd Munkin and Lamar Jackson. And he's reaching another level, throwing the ball. And I don't even know what you do with that. Um, Jim Schwartz is going to earn his money that week. So By but the yeah, way, I, do, Terry. I think you're I'm, right. I'm glad we haven't jumped into Deshaun Watson because I'm going to throw it at you. I no longer know what to say about Deshaun Watson. I don't either. And I, I keep thinking about this thing that he'll play when he's medically cleared. Well, <laughs> there's there's this scene in Miracle, right, where one of the guys comes in the locker room. He took a shot to the thigh of deep bruise, and Herb Brooks is like, can he hurt it anymore if he plays? And the doctor says no. So I think it's like Watson can probably play with this shoulder, but he won't be very good. Yeah, like there, so, there so comes a what? point where who, if he's medically cleared, but he can't throw the ball like he's supposed to, what's the point? He's hurt. And I never thought I'd be in a posi- position of having to defend Watson because, you know, I like nothing about the trade and nothing about all the baggage he brought along with him. Nothing about how it fractured the tr- the fan base, all that stuff. But I also don't like it when an athlete is is called soft or whatever, and especially when he has a history of playing. Because heading into that Baltimore game where he didn't play, of the he had 57 games of where he was eligible to play, and that starts goes back to I forgot 2018 or something. Anyway, he had played 56 out of 57. He played, and he wants to play. But the first pass he threw, and the second pass, I'm sitting up there. And I'm going, his arm is bad. It's floating. It's quacking. It's a duck. I mean, it just looked terrible. And they could talk about all they want. Here is the big thing with Watson and rotator cuffs. As somebody, this is, I've had two injuries. I've had a rotator cuff injury and Achilles, so I know a little bit about it. Fortunately, my rotator cuff was more probably, they just had a small tear, probably infamous micro tears. But when you're trying to do anything out of your regular range of motion with that, your arm feels very weak. It just feels like something's really wrong. Like if you stay like as they would in baseball, they would say your arm slot, probably like when he's practicing his throwing, it didn't look bad. But if you look out, you know how he is. He's always throwing off balance. His left shoulder's flying out. The right shoulder's behind. I mean, he's kind of a... a a nightmare when it comes to mechanics as a passer. Now he's been a very accurate passer that way in spite of that in the past, but you can see there was nothing on the ball. Well, yeah, it's, it's hard to replicate being chased and rolling to your left no. and trying to, and trying to get that shoulders, the shoulders square. Like it's hard to replicate that in practice a lot of times. And yeah, so we'll see. I, I'm, I'm as at a loss as you Terry. And I think a lot of fans feel the same way. It's just like when he's ready to play, play him. And like, Otherwise, like Kevin Stefanski says, like 
<laughs> just take it a day at a time and and see if he if he's able to go on Sunday. This That's is, all there is. You know, I'm at war with day to day. I know you are. And this is why, though, David, because this is an injury of some significance. It is not day-to-day. This is a significant injury. Now, is it a major injury? I don't know, but it's significant. We are on one month now from when he got hurt at Tennessee. And that is not day-to-day. You know, at the very least, it was week-to-week. And so now they'll have to see what they come up with. I don't, you know, the debate is like, do they put him on IR for four weeks? I'm not good enough to know that. But there's nothing that we saw Sunday before he got pulled from the game that makes you think, boy, it's a great idea to put him out there at Seattle. Yeah, and I, I think they've learned from that Baltimore week, and they're going to give him till Thursday. And if they're not seeing what they want to see, then he won't play. And yeah. they'll, they'll make the game plan for Walker and move on. And that's would the way you, it should be. Would, so. would you shop for another quarterback? Uh, I guess I would. There's been some sentiment, and I know Mary Kay – Cabot got a question on her podcast yesterday about should the Browns go after um, Jacoby Brissett. And short of somebody like that, like I, I mm-hmm. don't know who else would be out there. And what would you have to give up, I guess, is the big question. Yeah, I mean, I would love to have Brissett here because he could be your backup anyway. The, the case for Brissett is this. You know, along with all this stuff, we know he's a good guy and he knows Stefanski, all that. So he, it, it's kind of like bringing Kareem Hunt back. It's, it's a plug and play. And you also know he can handle whether he's playing or not. Finally, I think he hoped he'd be able to go to Washington and play, but they went with Sam Howell over him. So I think he would probably be more receptive now to this situation, knowing that Watson has a bad arm. Even if Watson goes back out and plays, you don't know right now how long he's going to last this year. I don't. Um, P.J. Walker, Lord love him. He, you know, he's he's scrappy. He's gutsy. He hasn't thrown a touchdown pass yet in two games. Um, and so, uh, this is really like trying to win the Indianapolis 500 with ball tires. That's how they're playing. I mean, you really are, you're relying on your pit crew to keep things together, but the guy, you know, behind there, he, he, he is all over the road or all over the field. PJ Walker is. So I would really look at something like Brissett. Maybe there's one or two others there that might be available, uh, because you're going to need, uh, something this year beyond just a uh, marginal NFL backup. Yeah, and the thing about Jacoby Brissett is he would know the offense. It would take him a week to get acclimated, and you could probably toss him in after a week of practice. You never know. So, I mean, one um, thing he's pretty good at is not throwing the ball to the other team. True, true. And and he's been around, and he kind of knows the league, and it would yeah. be a great move if they, can, if they could get him back here for not very much uh, draft capital. So uh, I'm trying to think where else to go with the Browns, Terry. Oh, you're doing the weekly kicker update. I'm going to do my weekly tackle update. That's right. Dewan Jones, once again, was the highest rated Browns offensive lineman. So kudos to him. And I also, again, Jedrick Wills. I don't know if you had a chance to rewatch the game-winning touchdown, Terry. Jedrick Wills caved in the entire left side of the Colts defensive line on that play. Wow. And it's the second time in two weeks where I've seen him close out a play to close out a game in a physical way. And I think this has been a good two-week run for him. Uh, and I think it bodes well for his future here in Cleveland. Maybe he's starting to finally get the physical part of that game, of the, of the game, and really just close a play out and just dominate people. It was it was something to see. If you get a chance, go back and watch that. I'm very worried about the Ford not playing. I, I along with not, It's not quite as ominous as rotator cuff, 
But did you hear high ankle sprain mentioned with Ford? Uh, speak Talk about injuries that last way longer than you think they will, right? Yes. And I have had some doctors tell me, you might as well call it like a hairline fracture, even though it's not the same. But it's, it's just one of those things that linger. And so now you're down to Pierre Strong and Kareem Hunt. I don't happen to like that backfield. Well, the thing that Ford brought was that home run ability. Yeah. We've already seen it twice with the long runs. And Kareem Hunt, physical, brings it every play, runs as hard as anybody in the NFL. But, like, you probably will not see him pop a 50-yarder. No. And I think that's going to hurt them because they, they need points any way, any way they can get him at this point. And I'm not sure Kareem at this point you want to run him 20 sometimes. That may not be where he's at physically. I don't know much about Pierre Strong. So they liked him. They went after him. Uh, but I don't know much about him. All right. We do have a letter on the Browns here. You got anything yeah. else you want to get into on the Browns before we jump into this one? Oh, can I bring up the holder? Yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, Corey, uh, Corey, the punter has been terrific. Borges. He has been great. I think for two years punting the ball on this guy. I mean, you need a 60 some yard punt. No problem for him. Bang. Wait, let's it go. But he got this rap when he was in his last stop, Green Bay, that he was the reason that some of the kickers were struggling or whatever. And I remember I actually um, emailed a top Browns official after Cade uh, York was struggling and said, uh, you know, I keep getting these emails about that. And the guy just wrote back, it's not the holder. And I think we see, since Dustin Hopkins is now having his best year as a pro, I don't think it's the holder. And on top of that, he can really punt. Okay, I'm done with all the special teams. Oh, no, he's doing a great job. And the other yeah. thing I was going to mention, Terry, we had the Cardinals game on the other night, and Prater missed a field goal for the Cardinals because the laces were facing his foot when he kicked uh. the ball. And he, know, he knew it and felt it. And we were watching the game here, and he got to the sideline and whipped his helmet into the bench and was steaming oh, for the next five minutes. So, I mean, it looks easy, but if it's not done right, it can change games. And uh, just no another reason I, to appreciate yeah, Boric has. We so. have no idea how fast you have to catch it and get it down. And uh, spin it. And spin it because they're coming at you. I wonder now if we're going to see more people try to leap the line of scrimmage like Miles Garrett did. Yeah, it could be. It could be the uh, defensive uh, trend of the year, like the tush push for offense. Yeah. It's uh, something Troy Palomalo, I think, did at one point, if I remember, mm -hmm. for the Steelers. So, all right, Terry, this is a Browns. This is kind of a two part question. One is a Browns question, and one is a Guardians question. So we'll do the Guardians one later. But this is from Elia Friedman from Portland. And Elia says, hi, Terry, long, long time reader and podcast listener. A couple of questions for the podcast. One's Browns and one Guardians. For the Browns, the two best defenses that won Super Bowls that I can think of were the 85 Bears and the 2000 Ravens. So the 2000 Ravens won the Super Bowl in 2001. Um, they both seem to be interesting comps to the 2023 Browns. Very good defenses, game control offenses. Are these viable comparisons? Could the Browns defense be good enough to carry us to a Super Bowl victory? And Ilya did send this before the game Sunday, yeah. so I, want, I do want to say that. But uh, what do you think of this concept of a defense carrying a team deep into the playoffs, Terry? And can you see this Browns team pulling that off? I think a defense can carry you into the playoffs, but then you need to have people that can make some plays on offense. 
But, yes, it can carry you into the playoffs, which is a good place to be. And um, But those two defenses were just so, so, so dominant. By the way, remember last week was uh, the best in the world, and Schwartz said you don't get any award, awards for five weeks. Um, <laughs> you got that yeah. right. So, okay, what was his other? What's he was other question? Oh, we'll come back to the Guardians one later. I, I was oh, just thinking okay. about the '85 Bears had. I think the, I'm trying to remember how many Hall of Famers were on that '85 Bears team. Um, but there were two or three, and I think there were two or three on that 2000 Ravens team. Like I'm trying to think of how oh, many Ray Hall of Bullish, Famers. Yeah. Yeah, are on this Browns defense, and other than Garrett, like, no, I don't. I'm see not seeing any else. right now, right? No, I don't think so. No, and that could change, you know, over the next year or two. But I, I think that they have a long way to go, as, as yeah. Jim Schwartz would tell them. So, uh, all right, let's take a break, Terry. When we come back, we're going to get into that Guardians question. We have a couple good Guardians questions. We're going to do our Cavs season predictions. Uh, we're going to talk about your column about the NBA and team building and how teams are going about it. And then we do have a couple of letters from our 100th episode a few weeks ago where people have written in to tell us about why they're Cleveland fans and why they listen to the podcast. So we'll be right back. on Terry's talking. We're back on Terry's talking. David Campbell and Terry Pluto. We're going to get into some Guardians here. Terry, I think last week we kind of mentioned how the Guardians might solve this problem with offense in the outfield. And I was doing a little research and we were looking at some charts today about some guys that might be on the market as unrestricted free agents. Obviously, there's trading and and there's other ways to go about getting some players. Uh, What do you think you'd be looking for? And I guess how much is defense going to matter to you or are you just looking for an offensive guy? How old? What's kind of a profile of someone you'd be looking for that the Guardians could bring in this offseason? Well, you gave me a list of free agents, and it's not just about nobody on that list that does much for me. Um, he doesn't have to be all that good defensively in right field, especially if you're going to keep Straw in center and Quan in left. But, boy, you need somebody to hit some home runs. And, I mean, the interesting free agent on the list is J.D. Martinez. He's 36 years old, 33 homers. But he played like 12 games in the outfield or something for the Dodgers. So I don't know what he's got left out there. Um, did you have anybody on a free agent list that you liked? Well, it, it's an it's a lot of older guys. And it's interesting, Terry, there was a group of six guys that were kind of at the top. We, we use Spotrack sometimes for this kind yeah. of stuff. It's a website with – and they do projected market values. And there's six guys who they project to be worth – between 16 and a half and 14.3. And that's Teoscar Hernandez, Jock Peterson, J.D. Martinez, Harrison Bader, Lourdes Gurriel, and Joey Gallo. Those are the six guys that they have listed at above 14 million for next wow. season. Joey Gallo. Oh. <laughs> just, just stick a, 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 a pick into my head. That guy, he just, he strikes out a ton. I mean, when he goes into a slump, I mean, he's so down, you know, Two bloodhounds and a groundhog couldn't find him. I mean, he just really drives me nuts. He actually is not bad defensively, but ugh, I just hate watching him play. So uh, Michael Brantley's on the list. Michael Brantley is 36 years old, one of, I think, our all-time favorites. Played 64 games in, in 22 and 15 games in 23. Uh, you know, so it's just that shoulder. He Remember, he used to have shoulder problems where they're back. And so I don't know 
about that. Go ahead. Who do you like out of this? Well, I was just going to say, like, after that group of six at the top, you're looking at guys like Brantley, Tommy Pham, who changed teams late in the season at the trade uh-huh. deadline. They have met 8.3. David Peralta, 8.3. Randall Grychuk, 8.0. Michael Taylor, Robbie Grossman, Kevin Kiermaier, um, who uh, Kiermaier is great defensively, yeah, but, like, you yeah. don't really need – like, you, you need offense, right? Same so, I don't know Taylor, that he fits. Taylor, Taylor's good defensively. It doesn't matter. Um so there's not much here, really, no. is what we're no, saying. You know what you need to do? You need to trade Bieber for an outfitter that can hit, which was the plan at the deadline. Uh, in fact, I heard this, but it's kind of a so-so source, uh, that the plan was to trade Bieber to Tampa Bay with for Marzano, uh, Manzardo, and others, you know, big league guys. And, of course, Bieber got hurt, and they ended up pivoting to Savali, which I think we're going to see is going to work out to be a very good trade. Savali's ERA was 5.3 after the trade with Tampa Bay. Uh, I bet we're going to find out he's hurt again. Uh, And Manzardo has had a really good, strong finish in Columbus and then also in the Arizona Fall League. So we'll see how that works out. But... um, you know, Bieber threw well, especially his last start. He's only got a year to go on the contract, but the way they're – how about this? I'm going to finish – not finish that sentence by pivoting to this. I was looking at MLB.com, writing the top, like, 50 free agents total, all positions. Guess where they had Lucas Giolito rated? 40? 16. <laughs> really? 16. <laughs> because – Based on that, he had 389 ERA until August 1st, and the need for starting pitching. They did put buyer beware, but somebody's going to pay this guy a lot of money anyway. In other words, I would rather gamble on Bieber and his arm than Louis Giolito with whatever was going on here. This guy, it was like guys had the ball, just threw it up in the air and hit it off of him. I mean, he was fooling nobody. And maybe he was tipping his pitches or something was going on because his velocity was uh, about the same as it was earlier in the year. He doesn't throw as hard as he used to. But my point is, if Giolito is even in the top 20 of free agents, um, Bieber, despite the missing time with the arm, should still be attractive to go out and get somebody in return. That's how I think you get your outfielder. I, I just don't see. You know, the you go out and try to make the equivalent of another Josh Bell buy. I don't know. So uh, maybe we can get into that a little bit next week, Terry. We'll try and find yeah. the formula that the Guardians look for is guys who are pretty young and have a few years of team control and have some yeah. promise and some pop, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe for next week we can put a list together of since the free agents don't look to be that strong, we'll put a list together of maybe uh, we'll start with the Padres. <laughs> yeah, we'll they, go always, they always like to trade with that guy. And, um, <laughs> Yeah, I saw the Padres, the guy who I was hoping that could land in Cleveland, Bob Melvin. They gave him permission to talk to the Giants, and I imagine, you know, he's a Bay Area guy uh, in terms of where he's worked with Oakland and all that. He'll probably go to the Giants. Um, and meanwhile, David, I mean, these names with the Guardians, Carlos Mendoza, Stephen Vogt, Clayton McCullough, Craig Albernez, Names. 
that's all to me. I don't, I don't really know anything. Common, common denominator. There are several catchers. Yeah, and, and a lot of pro sports teams are always accused of recycling guys. There's not a lot of recycling going on with that no, list. These no, are new, new guys that they think would have promise that they're interviewing. Well, a friend of mine mentioned, uh, says, "Boy, you think the Dodgers would fire Dave Roberts?" And boy, if that happened, I would jump on that so fast. That's Terry Francona all over again. You know, that's he would come here, and he even had a background of having played here at one point, and he would be out of that big market thing of like if you don't win the World Series, you haven't done a good job. Um, and he's good with people. He would he would be terrific. But I have not heard that going on. Just that the rumblings are not happy, but. Um, but we're back to, you know, a bunch of guys that I don't know. I mean, Stephen Vogt apparently is getting his second uh, interview. Uh, he's been a coach for one year. He was a catcher most of his career. And, of course, um, I'm trying to think who's uh, – Ross with the Cubs. Didn't he go straight from the broadcast booth and playing to managing, I believe? Yeah, pretty much, yep. And so did uh, the guy with the Yankees. Um Boone, yeah. I think yeah. he was doing broadcasting and playing, yeah. Boone. So All right. Well, teams, I think that Giants that. job might be the first domino, Terry. I think you're right. Yeah. And then things have got to start happening here pretty quickly because there's a, a staff to assemble. There's right. a lot I mean, of off-season I mean, planning to be done, and you want Greg your manager to be part of all Greg that. Council is available, but he's under contract till the end of October, and the assumption he's going up to the Mets with Stearns, his former boss. Uh, so, I mean, he would be a good choice, too, but he's you know, that's probably where he's going to go. All right. We do have two, two quick questions here, Terry. Uh, let's go with this one first from Dan Monahan from Erie, Pennsylvania. He says, quick question, you guys. Suppose you had only enough money to sign and extend either Stephen Kwan or Josh Naylor, but not both. Who do you select and why? You could get Naylor, um, excuse me, you could get the Kwan for a lot less. And I th- I think Quan's going to be solid. Naylor, I mean, Naylor could be worth a ton of money. He's got some power in that. Now you have to ask yourself about uh, the broken leg, his weight, uh, those things. I've I love Naylor there, but I, from an economic point of view, now of course they're both the same amount of money. Uh, I would take Naylor, but that's not going to be the case at all. It's an interesting question, Terry. So yeah. Naylor's what, 27, and mm-hmm. I think Quan was 26. Quan is pre-arbitration, and yeah. Naylor is in his third arbitration. He, yeah. So he's got arbitration for 24 and 25. So the, they've got some time here, pretty much a two-year runway, to kind of see what, what the deal's going to be. But mm-hmm. I keep thinking back to like which guy, if you lost either guy, which one would be harder to replace? And I think even where the Guardians are, I think Josh Naylor would be a yeah. lot harder to replace. Well, we so I probably that. would would choose him. Yeah, I think we looked if at you it. Had to choose. We looked at it last week. Where I just kind of looked at. It, I think it was the month of August where Naylor was out, and Jose hit like two ten or something. And then Naylor came back, and Jose hit over three hundred. Uh, it's now I got an email from a guy who listened to that and said, "Well, why doesn't Naylor's average drop off because of who's?" batting behind him, which is basically no one. 
Uh, so my, that's a good bridge to our second question, Terry, from, yeah. from Ilya Friedman. Okay. He says, in the last podcast, you mentioned that Ramirez stopped hitting when Naylor was out with his oblique injury okay. and started hitting again when Naylor came back. But practically no one of concern hit behind Naylor all year, yet he kept hit. He kept hitting. Why is this a reason for Ramirez not hitting? And how do we explain Naylor then in his incredible season without some fear-inducing hitter right behind him? Uh, he says, I've heard this all my life and I've never understood it. Thanks for that, Ilya. So what, what do you think, Terry? It's- I think because Naylor was not getting the respect from pitchers like uh, Jose did. And I believe next year he will, unless he gets somebody behind him. Meanwhile, if you're sitting in the other dugout, and I learned this from my year with Earl Weaver. First of all, Earl Weaver, with legendary Orioles manager, he hated the idea of pitching around a guy because he said, now, a veteran pitcher is really good, can do it. He said, but most of the time you go out and tell a guy, don't throw a strike. What does he do? He throws a strike. It's just, it's almost like you get asked for that. He said, if you want to walk a guy, just walk him. Then it's on you. And he said, I, and he used to walk, intentionally walk quite a few guys. He just say, I'm just sick of that guy beating me. Let me make somebody else beat me. And I think what you get, whether it's, uh, I believe Jose did lead the league in intentional walks. We'll have to go back and check. He was among the leaders. And it was a lot of managers in the American League saying, I'm sick of Jose beating me. I'll take my chance with Josh Naylor. And that's exactly what I would do. Now, that would be the nice thing if you could get somebody behind. That's sort of the case for J.D. Martinez as a DH, by the way. Uh, if you wanted to go in that direction for one year, then you go Jose, you go Quan, Jose, Nayor, J.D. Martinez. That's a pretty good top of the order. Yeah, and the other thing I was going to mention about the question, Terry, I think Jose had like a, what, a 356 on base percentage or something. Mm-hmm. So when you have guys on base and you're coming up to bat, yeah, they can't. They they got to throw some strikes to to try and that's, get you that's out. That's a good and point. It's another thing because yeah. he's already been walked. He's on first base, so that helps uh, with Naylor too. Um, Naylor's the eye test match the old velocity thing that they do now. Naylor just he he just steams the ball. I mean that that thing is rocketed off of his bat, and so that's and I liked how he's learned to hit to the opposite field some. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe they get lucky or whatever that Manzardo is really ready to go. Now, they won't open the season with you. I can tell, tell them that right now. They're not going to do in April in Cleveland with this prize prospect. They'll they'll wait till you know, June to bring him up or whatever because they don't want him coming up here and, and just going in the tank. Uh, but they will. Uh, that's, a, that's a possibility there. What I've liked about Manzardo, now he's starting to pull the ball even more. I've seen some of the videos of – by the way, there's a nice Twitter thing. It's just called Cleveland Guardians. I don't know where they get the videos of these prospects playing like in Arizona and other things. They have some great stuff up there that they put up on Twitter. Uh, check it out. Oh, and it's not the team account. It's somebody no, else. Oh, no, it's somebody huh. else. Yeah. And, All right. But you will see a lot of the balls that well, I liked about Manzardo when I looked at – now I looked at some uh, other stuff when they traded for him. Was his, he's a left-handed hitter, but his ability to hit the ball to left center and that. Now what I've seen on some of the stuff that's been posted of late, he's pulling the ball more and getting it up in the air. So that's, you know, all that is, uh, uh, this is interesting. I think he was, you know, a top five player in the major league pipeline and that. 
and um, we'll see what comes of that. But I, they need, I mean, to me, J.D. Martinez jumps out a, a right-handed bat, DHing, and if I could get him for one year, and I wanted to put out eighteen million or something like that, I would do it. And playoff experience, which would really help this yeah. team with where they want to go. So, so then you have, all right, you have him. Then you, you're still looking for a right fielder, and you could, you know, continue to audition. Or maybe that's where you make your Bieber trade. Um, but they, they can't come back with this this group that they they had. They just they just can't. I think yeah, I think they know that too, Terry. They they yeah. know they need more runs. I mean, Antonetti flat out said we need to score more runs, and so something's got to change. So I think Antonetti uh, hurt himself in the eyes of the fans, where he just said, "Well, almost like power is irrelevant. You just want to you know score more runs." Correct. However, you score them is how you score them. But you have to have. It's kind of like saying money doesn't matter. Money isn't everything, but money is something. Power isn't everything, but power is something. You need some. You need some money, and you need some power. It's really hard to have a playoff team, and I know they did it the year before without, I think they were second last at homers or whatnot, but they were 15th in runs scored, and they hit a ton of doubles that year. You know, the double power left. I mean, what really hurt them this year, you know, Oscar Gonzalez fell apart, and there was just sort of nobody when you end up with, you know, Ramon Laureano and these guys you're bringing up from the minor Cole Calhoun. Uh, that's when you're, you just don't want to really um, bring up your kids. You know, I have to admit, we'll see what, I, but we've been hearing about Valero for Valera for a while. He can't stay healthy. You know, he, I've watched him. He's got a nice bat, nice swing to it, David. And he's got that good sound when he hits it, but it's always something with hammock bone or shoulder or this, and, you know, it's kind of like he and Daniel Espino. You, if you're not healthy, it's just it's, – it's a big problem. So I wish there was something else in the minors. You know, there's something about Jonathan Rodriguez. There's a lot of power, a lot of strikeout. Um, but I, I just I – mean, I, now I'm, I'm talking myself really into J.D. Martinez. <laughs> All right. Uh, hey, let's move on to the Cavs, Terry. I want to keep us moving here. Cavs, we're taping this on Tuesday afternoon. The Cavs' first game is tomorrow night. They are playing at Brooklyn, and then their home opener is Friday at home, At home, obviously, against Oklahoma City at 7.30. You have a column going tomorrow, Terry. Uh, we're taping this on Tuesday afternoon. Tomorrow's Wednesday morning. It'll be on the website about how teams are chasing free agents and trying to build their roster. Why don't you talk about that, give people a preview? First of all, you know who is the most excited person in the world about the Cavs opening tomorrow. Kathleen Thompson, Thompson, our longtime yes, listener. Oh, yes, she is. And it wouldn't matter whether they were bad or good. She's loved the Cavs forever and was a very close friend of Joe Tate's. But Kathleen, I know, is very excited. And actually, I am too. Okay. A year ago, if the Cavs are opening with Brooklyn, who was with Brooklyn? Kevin Durant. And Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving. Think about that. Where are they now? Well, Kevin Durant is in Phoenix and Kyrie is in Dallas. Yeah. That worked well, well for them and Brooklyn. Here's what I'm saying is you look at, by the way, where's James Harden? Where did James Harden end up? Philly? Yeah, and he's not playing. He, oh, called, okay. the G, he called the GM a liar and he's sitting at home. <laughs> okay. this is the, here's the NBA. Do you see where I'm going with this? 
what a bunch of garbage is happening out there. These guys move from team to team. They're always chasing stuff. Team, The NBA is driven by big names, jumping teams, and firing coaches. This is what the league is about. Now, you turn around and go, who happened to win Miami and Denver? This kind of more boring, stable franchise things. Now, Giannis signed an extension to stay in Milwaukee. How about that one? Boy, three years, like $62 million a year pretty yeah. much, right? Yeah, he yeah. did. But, but you know, this league, it's like you want your options, you want all that. And so that is, a, I think, a really good point to it. And then you turn around and you look at, now they did trade for Lillard. Um, but we'll see what uh, we'll see what happens. But I, when I look at the Cavs, they're doing this the right way, David. They're, they are. Because you, you, basically you have to do it with your draft picks and smart trades. And you have a starting lineup that's 27 and under. Donovan Mitchell being 27 and that. Of course, it's like, well, Mitchell didn't sign an extension. If Mitchell had signed an extension at this point, his agent should have been fired because it would have cost him $60 mil- million or more. I, I don't want to get into all the salary cap stuff. I'm just telling you, he would have been fired. He should have been fired. So we'll wait to see. Maybe a year from now, he goes somewhere else. Who knows? But when you go Mitchell and Garland and Evan Mobley and, you know, Jared Allen, and hopefully Struz can uh, take that small forward spot, Niang, you know, Okoro, you've got some nice bench. you got Levert, who I – Levert's won me over, David. At first I was I was down on him. But he is – he has made more sacrifice than anybody on the team in terms of giving – up his shots, willing to play different positions. And I will tell you this, I had two agents tell me when Levert signed, I think it's a two-year extension with the Cavs, they go, yep. they got him cheap. He goes, Two he years, must, $32 million, Terry. Which is a ton of money, but not in the NBA. Right. And they said, and he's a good guy. He must have really wanted to stay there. He said, that is a real compliment to them and the kind of organization they're running. So I just want to see this play out. And I think you're right about the team, the team culture and, and home growing things, Terry. I mean, look at some of the recent champions. I mean, Milwaukee, yeah. right? They built, they built it. Um, you know, the Lakers are the exception, probably when LeBron went out there. But, but that Denver. Hasn't, that hasn't worked out real well for them after that. He won in the bubble year. Right, right, and even you go back to the to the Warriors when they yeah. were start they they home grew all those guys, and then when they couldn't beat the Cavs in 2016, they brought in Durant. By the way, that, that's like a combination thing, I guess, yes, to get them yeah, over the top. A trivia but, question, and the only place Kevin Durant ever won a ring was Golden State. Yes, with a group that already won one title. Right, and then you look at the only place Kyrie Irving ever won a title was Cleveland Cavaliers with LeBron. And right. then with, who had his own championship culture, which he brought from Miami, I may add. And then, of course, Kyrie's gone on to mess up three other franchises after that. You, from Boston to Brooklyn. I mean, he goes to Dallas. They don't even make the playoffs. That is going to be a fascinating combination down there with him and Luca in yeah, one well, basketball. Just, just as that. And. <laughs> Uh, again, and by the way, I happen to love Durant's game. I like Durant. I think Durant's. I don't think Durant's a, a cancer on a team or anything like that. But it's it, it's like he was kind of chasing something odd here. Um, you know, where you go to Brooklyn. I mean, do you really 
want to hook up your future and you're in your 30s to Kyrie Irving? I mean, come on. You know that that's a problem. And then, of course, he, he says, I got to get out of here. And he goes to Phoenix. And it may work out for him in Phoenix. I don't know. But when you look at who you know, sustained success, all that stuff, um, you know, LeBron, had, LeBron was in his prime here. And they did build a very good team culture around LeBron, guys that wanted to play with LeBron. And, you, and whether it was Tristan Thompson, who's still here, or J.R. Smith left playing here, uh, Kyle Korver. You know all those different guys, Delhi. They, you know, they they figured it out, and so I'm I'm just uh, I look at that and I say, the Cavs, just just give this time, and if the whole thing is simply about waiting six months to get to the playoffs, I mean, please go back to just worrying about the Sean shoulder. I mean, give me a break. You know. All right, Terry. So we let's get into predictions right, I'm, here. I'm so, the, what's your prediction? That. No, it all ties together. What's I have your prediction? Two things. For I'm the... at war with the NBA regular season. Doesn't matter. And and guys day were, to day. and guys were significantly hurt being day to day. That's all right. right. All right. All right. Twenty twenty three twenty four Cavaliers prediction. I think it was fifty two games. I said, and uh, uh, they'll win around the playoffs. Okay, I'm going to say fifty three games. And I'm, I'm wondering if, I mean, last year's mission was get into the playoffs, yeah. right? And and they did that in 150 games. I really wonder in terms of load management and and how they approach the regular season if they might rest guys strategically. I, I think they're going to win. I think they're going to win at least one playoff series, maybe two, because I think they're going to tailor their approach after January to have the legs to to win two series. They, uh, and so the win total, some people might think they should, they're going to win more games, but I think they they might win a few less than some people might think because they're going to be looking to the playoffs. That's just a gut feeling. I don't have anything to base that on, but it's a theory. Yeah, well, so you, want you, to, you want to win at least 50. That should get you the home court. And of course, somebody will scream, yeah, they won 51 and have the home court and they got knocked out by the Knicks. Okay, fine. I'd rather, so I'd rather just have the, you know, I'd rather not have the home court. I mean, that's ridiculous. You'd rather take, you always want to take the home court, but you don't need to win 65, you know, or whatever that is. So right. secondly, there, I think with adding uh, Niang and Struess, I need to see a little more tied to Rome. A little bit I saw in the preseason. I have to admit, I was kind of disappointed. Um, I didn't want, I, he had trouble running the, uh, the offense some and, and that. So I worry about, the backup point guard situation. I mean, I, I guess that they figured uh, you could, when Garland's out, you could run it through Mitchell and, and put Levert in the backcourt or uh, that kind of stuff. But, uh, or Struess could play also in the backcourt. So we'll see. But nonetheless, they have more depth than they had uh, last year, which should help to your point of view about trying to uh, load manage with these guys more. And I just, look, um, Chris Feeder has a wonderful story up in Evan Mobley. And, you know, that is the thing that can take you to another level is if his game continues to go up to another level. And I think it will continue to do that. I'm glad you mentioned that story, Terry. Give that a look if you haven't. It's on cleveland.com today. Chris writes about Mobley. He put a weight room into his house, yeah. a Cavs-themed weight room, and he's gained seven pounds. And uh, he's he's serious about making this happen. So give that story a look and a really great read by Chris. So. All right, Terry, uh, we have some more responses. A few weeks ago for our 100th episode, you you invited 
listeners to send in their story about where they're from and why they're Cleveland fans. And we've gotten some from all over the world and, and we've got some more good ones this week. So you want to get into the first one sure. of these? All right. This one, it's uh, it says, hi, Terry. I'm a loyal listener of the Terry's Talking Podcast. Let me first apologize. English is not my mother tongue, so my texts won't be perfect. Sometimes Reads when good I'm so right, far. I know the one thing with some of my stories I read, I don't know what tongue it was, but uh, it, 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 it needed work. So go ahead. All right. He says, you wondered how people became a Cleveland sports fan. Well, I live in Mechelen, Belgium. Wow. And I have the Belgian nationality. I'm a big Cavs, Browns, and Guardians fan, despite that I have never been to the U.S. I even have a paid subscription to Cleveland.com Lord just to read it. all the sports articles. <laughs> yeah. How did I become a Cleveland follower? In 1999, I read an article about the popularity of NBA teams among NBA fans. At the bottom, your Cleveland Cavaliers. <laughs> Since I always loved the underdog, that day I became a fan of the Cavaliers. The early years were no fun. It was the days of Lamont Murray and Wesley Person, but that's why I love American sports. If you are very bad during some years, thanks to the lottery and the draft, teams have a chance to turn it around. Later, I started following baseball, and six years ago, I also became a big Browns fan. Thanks for reading my email, and keep up the good work. And that is from Tom Van Noyen in Belgium. So, wow, thanks for that letter. That's really some story. Huh, Terry? Well, if you think about 99, not only were the Cavs terrible, the Browns are just coming back from the move. <laughs> so you had all that. And the Guardians in 99 were, or the, well, they were the tribe, obviously. And I do believe that was the year that they blew the playoffs to the Red Sox. And Mike Hargrove's last year. We have to check that, but I'm pretty sure that's correct. They were up like two to nothing or something like that in that series. So he certainly picked a good year to decide to sign up to be a Cleveland sports fan. Yeah, he, he bought in at the bottom. And you're right, Terry, that 99 uh, Indians team went 97 and 65. They won the AL Central and they lost to Boston 3 to 2. Yeah, they were up in the division series. And it just fell apart. So once again, the steel trap mind of Terry Pluto on display so very impressive um okay this next one is from david muley and he says hey terry and david i'm retired and currently live in tucson arizona i was born and raised in cleveland and as a child rocky calavito was my favorite player i was devastated when he was traded to detroit and never really cared about the indians after that i remember listening to brown's games on the radio and keep it keeping a tally of jim brown's rushing yards during his career I was in high school when the Browns defeated the Colts for the championship in 1964. How disappointing that the game was not broadcast on the local TV station. I didn't you know, know why? That. You know why? No, why? Art Modell blames the NFL. But, all right, cheap plug time. Brownstown 1964, my book is all in there. A Modell, for whatever reason, was worried the game would not sell out or something. He didn't allow them to broadcast. It wasn't until the. I remember watching it the next evening after the game is when it was. I listened to it with my friend and his family in their basement on the radio uh, with Ken Coleman and I forgot who else. But anyway, um, or excuse me, Gip Shanley rather. And he just, he had the option and he opted not to have it broadcast. And no matter what, he has said since revisionist history, that's the truth. And now not soon after that, I think Terry, but the rule went into place where the game home team could have their games on local TV. If the game was sold out. 
Yes. So I wonder if that had anything to do with that, where he's like, oh, well, if you sell it out, then you can put it on. Anyway, we digress. Yes. <laughs> Back to the letter from David. He says, after college, I left Cleveland but remained a Browns fan. I remember watching them play the Jets on the first Monday night football game while I was stationed at Fort Sam Houston mm. in Texas. While never living in Cleveland again, I tried to attend one Browns game a year, either in Cleveland or if they were playing in a nearby city. I've seen them play in Seattle, San Diego, and Phoenix, all losses. After the team moved to Baltimore, I did not watch any football until they came back in 1999. I made a special trip from Seattle to watch them lose to Pittsburgh, 34-0 in their first game uh-huh. back in 1999. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, in terms of suffering as a fan, my best friend from graduate school is a Steelers fan, so our communications frequently revolve around the latest Cleveland-Pittsburgh game. While the team has struggled so much since coming back, I continue to wear my Browns gear, and it's amazing the number of Browns fans I encounter so far from Cleveland. I do enjoy listening to your podcast, and I hope they will continue to keep me up to date on all Cleveland sports, but primarily the Browns. And again, that's David Muley. Thanks, David. Huh, oh, interesting. Boy. Another. Bad He's right, man. though. You. You see Browns fans everywhere, yes. like yeah. in Cleveland sports fans. It's really something. It, it really makes no sense. I mean, just from a logic point of view, it makes no sense. And I hope the Browns, I think they've never fully appreciated all the different front offices and have come in here. The, there's a bunch of old lines. You know, if the Browns were a restaurant, everybody could, could you know sue them for being poisoned. I mean, all kinds of stuff like that. About it. But it's true. And the 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 rap uh, the loyalty and the rabbit following is beyond remarkable to me. And Lord love them because they read a lot of my stuff and that keeps me employed and I'm I'm thrilled about that. I just that's why it's been nice the last two weeks. I really do enjoy it when the Browns win. If you watch my stories, I have fun with it. I throw exclamation points in there and everything else, just to, as I call it, right for the moment. Because we don't get that many great moments when you're following the Browns. That's right, and everyone is appreciated. And boy, I, I think Tom, that Tom Van Noy in uh, his letter, you, it's what's the old line from Ted Lasso? It's the hope that kills you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true for Browns fans as well as for uh, AFC Richmond. So, all right, Terry, I think we're done here. Anything else you want to mention? No, that'll do it. Tom mentioned subscribing. If you want to subscribe, you can go to cleveland.com slash Browns, and there's a blue banner at the top. You can subscribe. We'd love to have more subscribers come along. Uh, We'll be back next week. We'll have a lot to talk about, Terry, with the Cavs having a couple of games under their belt, Uh, the Browns playing in Seattle on Sunday. We'll get into that and more of your letters next week on Terry's Talking.